Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to another edition of On the Continent, your one-stop shop for all things to do with European football. I'm Dotton Adebayo. I'm Nicky Mandini. And I'm Lars Watson. And this time, don't cry for me, Barcelona. The truth is, Antoine Griezmann has gone and left them to ponder on mismanagement. Elsewhere in the departures lounge this week was Cristiano Ronaldo. What will Turin be like after him? And with the deadline day dust settling, we're rummaging for a few diamonds in the rough and give you the inside track on some stars to keep an eye on. Let's start, first of all, with what's going on in Spain. The saga of Barcelona seems to get worse and worse and worse at last. Now, Antoine Griezmann has gone back to his home club, you could argue, pre-Barcelona, for a lot less than he went the other way for. Yes. Um, if, if, if memory serves, Barcelona signed him for something like 120 million euros. He's now been loaned back uh, with an obligation to buy next summer. Uh, or I think he can actually be paid later as well, but certainly an obligation to buy uh, for 40 million euros, which is a big hit to take on a player who's just been at the club for, for two seasons. So on paper, it's a bit of a disaster. And okay, in any sense, you'd have to call it a bit of a disaster. But But I would temper that by saying... I think the idea of keeping on to him would be 
maybe I'm using words I don't fully understand here, but it would be a bit of a sunk cost fallacy. I mean, because you can't really say, oh, we paid so much for him, we have to keep him. The reality is he was a player who, uh, to, to, to reference a, a good friend, friend of yours, the great Tim Vickery, um, he said this about Coutinho, that since he went to Barcelona, Coutinho's looked like a solution looking for a problem, which I thought was a great description. And I think that's been true with Griezmann as well. I think from day one, he's looked like a guy who undeniably a great footballer, but just doesn't have a place in that team. And, uh, and and I'm not sure that would have been dramatically different this season. Maybe with Messi, it would have been easier for him to find a place. But the reality is that they were paying him an awful lot of money in wages, uh, a contract that, to me, hardly even made sense pre-pandemic, certainly didn't make sense post-pandemic. And yes, they're not getting back anywhere near what they spent for him, but getting him off the wage bill when the situation is as dire financially as it is from Barcelona... You know, it's probably a win. And we said this very early on in this pod, as early Andy Brassel was, you know, ahead of the curve on this. Barcelona may have thought they were going to get a big transfer fee for him, but that was never going to happen. And yeah, 40 million euros is not a lot to get back for Griezmann when you spent 120 on him not that long ago. But the, the landscape has changed and he's not gotten any younger. Does, does and, that and 40 I think, million, though, accurately reflect where Griezmann is today, given that he went to Barcelona from after a successful time at Atletico, Nicky, mm-hmm. went to Barcelona and didn't really shock out for them? Yeah, I mean, it's it's possible to get sort of too far into the reeds to be interesting with these numbers, I think, sometimes. And I think it's sort of, to, to sort of say it quickly, it's, it's worth bearing in mind that when players sign footballers as an asset um, they are written on their books in a way that their value declines each year naturally they have something called amortization so if you signed a player on let's um, give a, a straightforward example if you spent 30 million um, on a player and they're on a three-year contract then each year that they're there you write 10 million of their value off that's how you sort of write it into your finances so in a sense they've had two years of Griezmann they have written off some of that initial money that they spent I think what makes this one still feel like it must be very hard to stomach and certainly for the fans hard to stomach even though in the end in the end football fans don't really care what their clubs spend and bring in they just care that they keep spending it but what makes it hard to stomach is I think a few things first of all there was a number one of the numbers that really did stay with me from this um, transfer is I saw in his uh, original contract joining Barcelona um, Barcelona put a release clause in for Griezmann that was 800 million euros which is of course something you never expect people to pay but I think just tells you some sort of idea of what you think you're buying you're buying an asset that is so valuable that it's almost invaluable right it's something that's 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 unbuyable and now within two years you're selling him for 40 million I think the fact that he is still 30 years old at a time when we are seeing more and more top level strikers and forwards push on quite far into their 30s makes the 40 million hard to swallow um and I think the fact that he even while not being everything Barcelona wanted him to be, the fact that he scored, I think, still 20 goals across all competitions last season. And the, your starting lineup as Barcelona is going to involve Luke de Jong. It's going to be sort of <laughs> looking at, at Memphis Depay as sort of the, 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 the star of the show almost. It's, it's those things that make this number, I think, really difficult to swallow. But on the other hand, as Lars is saying, this is a club that has. Um, I mean, the debts run to over a billion euros now. You can't, you simply can't just continue to run losses indefinitely. And the wages were really significant. And just getting that off the books allows you to take a first step. And my goodness, there are a lot of steps that still need to happen. But a first step towards 
trying to get that situation under control. So he has left Barcelona for yes. good then. Uh, does that sort Barcelona's problems out or not financially? Or does it go it doesn't so, it doesn't solve anything well it doesn't solve everything uh, but but it was probably a financial necessity uh, what we've also seen is that you know after PK took a big wage cut Busquets and, and Jordi Alba have also now taken big wage cuts so everyone's going to have to uh, make uh, little little sacrifices like that to, to 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 get it all sorted the frustration i guess I, I, I'm, you know, if you listen to this podcast, you know I'm slightly obsessed with like, if you have a player on your books, you're paying too much, you should try to get rid of him because this sort of thing for so many clubs is, you know, it's not the transfer fees that kills you, it is the wages. Uh, but if there is a frustration here, it is that maybe this was the season where Griezmann could have potentially come into his own at Barcelona because I think just positionally, I don't, I wonder if they ever asked this question when they signed him. Where is he meant to play? Because there's something that always seems to not come first when these sort of superstar signings are made. We're talking about the branding and the social media clout and all this. I've, it feels like no one asked when they signed him Barcelona where is he meant to play because Antoine Griezmann played much of his best football throughout his career uh, playing off uh, a centre forward, playing off a big centre forward off like you being the sort of second striker to the sort of chaos of Diego Costa uh, you know playing off Giroud for the national team he's a bit of a throwback in someone who, who likes playing as a second striker in a front two um, and that position doesn't exist at Barcelona and it hasn't it probably won't ever exist uh, and and when when he was there that space off the off the striker is where Messi liked to move into. So it was it was never really going to work. And Coutinho as well wants to operate there. So again, this was a weird signing to begin with. Now this season, first of all, um, Messi is left. So maybe there's a way for him to f- find that identity. I mean, they have kind of been playing him out wide, hoping that would work. But also, the much ridiculed signing of Luke de Jong, I think is something that could have potentially unlocked Griezmann because he would have had a sort of big, lumpy centre-forward who's not that great, who he could sort of play one-twos off which is something Griezmann likes to do. So if there is a frustration, it's that. But I suspect that it was just a financial necessity to get him off the books in almost any way they could. Yeah, I, th- I think that's exactly it. And and it's a football... If you wanted to sort of not think about money for a moment and say it's a football project, and in the context of your football project, you've just said goodbye to Leo Messi, why not say, all right, then, well, then we'll just make a team around what Griezmann does well. Mm. Let's let's not even think about anything else. This is the best player we have now. Let's let's make it around this. And I think that if it wasn't for the money, that would have been totally logical. Um unfortunately the money is a real thing. I suppose you've also got um the other name that hasn't been sort of mentioned as much because he's injured, but have got Sergio Aguero this um this summer. And if he's fit he isn't that. If he wants to play. Well, yeah. <laughs> he's furious. He he came to play with Messi. And I was like, what's this now? Yes. Um <laughs> It's a, it's a strange story, isn't it? I mean, I still think, I still think there are other clubs where he might have been a, a better fit, Aguero. But certainly, he's not. He's not um, the the sort of number nine. Knock it down for you. So that also doesn't fit. Um, but in the, it, it's boring. But in the end, this is just it's it's a money move born out of desperation. Is what it is. Mm. This is someone who is earning twenty million euros a year, and that adds up real fast. Um, so yeah, and that's it, twenty it, million years. Twenty million euros a year. I think that is. Um, after tax, actually. so It's amazing. And I, I know we do cover this over and over again. And it is amazing, though, that nobody sat down and thought, what do we do if there's a pandemic and we can't open well, I up think the across gates? the board, across the world, well, not a lot of people did that. Th- that's, <laughs> only, that that's only part of the conversation, actually. Yeah. It could be any disaster, if you like. 
what what do you do if some if you go and borrow money from the bank? The bank turns around to you and says to you, "So what happens if you become sick?" Yeah, yeah. How do we get our money back? Yeah, yeah. You know, you, you do try and sort of find a way out of the worst possible situation, mm. but nobody seemed to have asked themselves that when they were splashing all this money about in Barcelona. How do we get ourselves out of this if it all ends up a mess? Yeah, I think this is. Um obviously just something that has happened historically um, plenty of times with football clubs is that people are willing to loan more money to football clubs than they should. And I think Barcelona and Real Madrid in particular in Spain have occupied such a sort of special cultural place that I'm certain there have been times when they've been loaned money that the right questions were not asked because of of power and because of a desire to... Um, to uh, I don't know, take some sort of stake in, in a in a club that, that people have emotional feelings about as well as um, pure business headed decisions. On top of that, though, you might also well have reasoned as a financier. I am not a financier, but if you were, this is a pretty safe bet. It's Barcelona. They've got one of the biggest global brands in the world of sport, not just football, any, any sport. And they have Leo Messi. Now, that's the sort of, the real sort of pull the rug moment with Leo Messi is it's not just a football thing. Suddenly, the actual asset value of this team is is not that meaningful anymore. And mm. and people at the club have been quite candid about it. But the, the value of that club now, I think, am I, am I right in saying the Porter said it? Someone certainly said it about it being a negative actual value on the club now. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah, I would imagine that would be the case because of the debts they have and uh, and all this. And and I guess to if we're moving on a little bit in the, the, the Barcelona-Griezmann uh, conversation, uh the question is where we go now. I mean, where does Barcelona end up being now? And I've heard a few suggestions that they could risk becoming the new Milan in that they were this great team that were, you know, one of the superstars teams of the world and winning Champions Leagues and super big names and all this who sort of declined and for a while almost had to just trade on their name and couldn't trade on much else. The, the thing I would say to that, to, to be a little bit positive on Barcelona's behalf, is that I think we're further down the road of super clubs sort of, you know, departing the rest of the sport almost in terms of the financial reality. So we're talking about the debts, we're talking about how much they're losing. But, you know, the pandemic is going to end at some point. People will be back in the stadiums. I mean, the football economy, I think, will right itself a little bit. Uh, and, and I think, I don't think we're, I don't think the broadcasting bubble is bursting just yet. So we will get back to a point where Barcelona are still this giant behemoth that's generating a lot of cash. And if they've gotten certain people off the wage bill, if other people have taken wage cuts, they're still a huge club and a huge draw. And if... I don't think they necessarily will backslide into becoming this sort of chaotic mid-table institution that Milan were for a few years. I think there's a few things, aren't there? First of all, and this is interesting, this one to me, because I think we build up mythology all the, all the time around things like this. And these are the moments when you find out how real um, something was. But there is still a mass here, right? You, you've claimed for all this mm. time to have one of the best youth systems in all of world football. Well, this would be a good time for that to, to help you out. Um I think that what Lars says about the era of global super clubs, I think is true. I think we live ever more and more in an era of brands. And I do think that football clubs have lost something in the recent time. And we'll talk about this with Ronaldo, I'm sure, in a bit. But I think that players have become brands that can supersede clubs that are even bigger than, than clubs in, in, in some cases. But still, the, the global branding of particular clubs is more powerful than ever. And Barcelona have one of the strongest. What's interesting, actually, about Milan as an example is... Yes, Milan have been in the wilderness for a while. They are now actually sort of trending back in the right direction again. They're back in the top four. They managed a real title challenge last season. And what you see 
in terms of audience figures um, internationally is for TV audiences. Milan still draw bigger audiences than a club that plays great football like Atalanta. So so the global branding never actually went away from mm. Milan, even through that period of, in the wilderness. They still get to come back and be Milan because those things are generational. It takes, I would think it would take an extraordinary amount of time for a club like Barcelona in the same way as Milan to, to lose that. What I think is, I guess, an area that I don't have answers on, which is sort of complicated um, and I'm curious to, to sort of imagine what could happen with, is Milan in the end, um, in terms of how they have rattled through a few different owners, despite all this global brand, operate like just another club, right? They've had different people come in and out. In the end, it's mm. been, I mean, not in the end, because eventually they'll, they'll go too, but it's, it's this Elliott Investment Fund, who frankly are, you know, very much a, a hedge fund who are interested in um, looking after the bottom line, who have been the ones who've... You chose your words very carefully. <laughs> well I am trying to. Um, who've been the ones who've, who've been sort of present for this turnaround and who've made sensible decisions in terms of leading the club, but nevertheless are not necessarily there as a passion project. Definitely not there as a passion project. There is a, as a financial project. Barcelona have such a different ownership model. Yeah, they are Mexican club. It's talked about so much. I actually don't know if that makes it more complicated to sort of do what Milan have ended up doing, which is go through a very painful and not um, pleasant um, rotation of owners almost to finally wind up with someone who's got enough control to get things under control. I think that's an interesting sort of elephant in the room because we tend to talk up member-led clubs as sort of this is the way, like we don't want evil oligarchs mm. and nation states and hedge funds to run our football clubs. There's no romance in, in Elliot owning your club. But, but I do think it can almost be more challenging to, to run a club in a rational way when you have voters with, with all the sort of whims and passions of football fans to answer to. And I don't think you can isolate the mess Barcelona have gotten themselves into completely from the fact that to avoid that, they probably would have made some really unpopular decisions. Like, again, it's not the transfer... I mean, I, I, to be fair, they've paid some ludicrous transfer fees as well, but what's really gotten them into trouble is the wage bill. And part of that, a big part of it, is paying Messi something like a reported like 100 million a year or something, if you believe the Football Leaks uh, stuff. But also, when we see now with the wage cuts, like Pique, Alba, Busquets, these guys who are legends of the club, who've been through the Pep Guardiola era, and just over years have probably negotiated their deals up to a pretty unsustainable level. To avoid that, you have to be strong and put your foot down and say, like, I don't care how many trophies you've won for this club we cannot pay you this and if you're threatening to leave we're just going to have to let that happen like for instance Bayern Munich did with David Alaba now those decisions are probably harder to make when you know you're going to get voted out by the socios if you make unpopular decisions yeah well Inter is a great example this summer aren't they do, mm. do, do a club in Inter position want to say goodbye to Lukaku and Hakimi after finally winning the league for the first time in 11 years no but they had owners who had no choice and so it's happened and it's very, very early days, so who knows? But first couple of games in Terra looked fine. But, but what I wanted to say, lastly, uh, I was trying to make this point earlier, but I sort of talked myself into the wilderness a little bit. Um, on the sort of Barcelona as the new Milan things, I see that a lot being being referenced, and I understand the comparison. But I think when the dust settles on the pandemic, when, when we get back up and running again, for them to backslide into sort of mid-table obscurity, they have to be overtaken by people. For, for, I mean, that's, that's how a competition works. And as much as everything has been mismanaged and gone wrong for them as a club, 
when things are back to normal or close to some sort of normality, their ability to generate money will again be on a completely different level to Sevilla, to Batiste, to, to the competitors they're actually up against. So so they, they won't be as overwhelmingly wealthy, but they'll still generate so much more money that unless they go back to making spectacularly bad sporting decisions, they, they should be you know protected a little bit from that sort of backslide. Flips it back oh. for the Frenchman. A oh. A work of art for Griezmann. The Louvre is calling Barcelona. They want to hang that one, that one up in their fancy museum in Paris. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's transfer deadline day. Ashwood City are drifting under manager Sven Joran Eriksson and chief executive Patrick Norland is willing to do whatever it takes to turn things round. Oh, look, it's just for a season or two, you know. We, we get them really cheap, you know, 10% of what they're worth in some cases. And, I mean, the sponsors it would attract as well as the cash out. Patrick Nolan, MBE, stop talking. This is a fucking Tevez and Mascherano player heist. In the award-winning football mockumentary, The Offensive, the thick of it meets the Premier League, and things are about to reach breaking point in the boardroom. That's the rules, Woody. Oh, so now we like the rules, do we? Woody, you can't just move a piece and make up how to play. Well, you don't get to tell me what I can and can't do. No, move that back. Fucking get off. Don't touch my pieces. You're cheating. You're cheating. Cheating. That's an invasion of my pieces, that. Stop fingering my bishop. You don't know where he's It's not... Oh... Start your Ashwood City journey and listen to The Offensive wherever you get your podcasts. The Offensive is a stack production. It really is a a tale of two different European, southern European uh, leagues on today's on the continent. So we've talked about Spain and the issues for La Liga, the post-Messi issues, if you like, for La Liga or the post-Antoine Griezmann issues. And Nikki, you said something really crucial to this conversation. If I look at it from afar and I'm looking at the comparisons between these two leagues, uh, you said we're in the era now of uh, the 
the superstar or words mm-hmm. to that effect, uh, superstar branding rather than the club branding. And uh, there is a, a dilemma here for many clubs. Are they a business or are they a football club? Because arguably there will be some players at the very top of the European leagues who are arguably bigger than the clubs. I know people say, no, no, no players bigger than the club. But Cristiano Ronaldo, arguably, you know, bigger than Juventus? Yeah, I think so. I think Ronaldo and Messi are brands that probably as individuals are bigger than any football club at I this don't point. think anyone's uh, disagreeing that Messi is a bigger uh, brand than Paris Saint-Germain, really. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's pretty obvious. Um, but Juventus is a big club. Juventus are a huge brand. Um, but this is one of the things that I think... Can I, I never know if people are interested in talking about this or, or not. Um, but, but hopefully people who listen to this podcast are. I, there's, there's a very sort of... It's not straightforward, actually, because you can still have a, a big argument about it. But there's a there's a very sort of um, contained conversation you can have about was Ronaldo worth it as a footballer for Juventus? And I, I think I tend to come down on on a pretty clear no on that conversation because in the end, he didn't do the things as a footballer that they hoped he would. He still scored an incredible number of goals. He was still brilliant. I'm not saying anything other than that. He was brilliant as a footballer at Juventus. But in the end... In footballing terms, you wanted him to help you win the Champions League. You got further away from that with Ronaldo. And um, although he had a magnificent um, tie against Atletico Madrid at the beginning, in the end, the last season, actually, the Champions League ties were kind of the ones where he didn't he didn't show up for you. Um, but the the real conversation about Ronaldo um, from Juventus's point of view, of course, that was a, a really big part of it. Not they didn't think about the football side of it. It was a very genuine belief that he could help them get over that last hurdle having gone to the final twice in four years but you don't spend a hundred million on him and pay him the huge wages without considering all of it and a very big part of it for Juventus was what Ronaldo would mean for them as a club being able to advance who they are as a brand internationally and they had reached this sort of ceiling it felt like the club turnover was around 400 million euros so they built the new stadium they had done everything right, frankly, I, I think, for, for, for the best part of a decade under Andrea Agnelli in terms of bringing themselves forward. And they'd found that they could only take their commercial revenue so far. And within Europe, they were still a huge way behind Real Madrid, Barcelona and the Premier League clubs who keep getting richer and richer because of the, the TV deals. And Ronaldo coming in had this immediate transformative impact on things that Again, I know some people are going to hear this and roll their eyes at it, but Instagram following, Facebook following, it had, you know, for a club that is, of course, people sit here and they think, oh, everyone already heard of Juventus. Yes, lots of us will sit here who follow European football and think they've already heard of Juventus. I think maybe some people still don't have that full understanding of of the the level of fame of, of Messi and Ronaldo. It's, it's a Michael Jackson thing. You're bringing in someone who is just an independently famous in a way that that even goes outside of football. And that translates to something more tangible, which is Juventus doubled their contract with, with Adidas. I think more than doubled their, their shirt sponsorship deal with Adidas. They um, are sponsored by Jeep, which of course is part of the Fiat family and they are owned by Fiat. It's a bit complicated, but they more than doubled their sponsorship deal with, with, with Jeep as the main sponsor. There are really sort of um, genuine conversations with, with advertisers that sort of pocket clubs into groupings depending on where their social media following is that matters so 
Ronaldo did something for the club in terms of elevating their potential in those areas that was really real. On the other hand, to look at that particular picture in its totality, they were unfortunate that it happened just before the pandemic happened. So revenues collapsed anyway, despite increasing those commercial revenue streams. They lost all of their match day revenue and and ended up losing absolutely heaps of money the last two years. And um now you sort of look at it and and you can ask the question still, was it enough? And you could do that even if the pandemic hadn't happened, maybe it wouldn't have been enough. But did Ronaldo, while he was there, increase the visibility, increase the commercial appeal of Juventus to people outside of football? A hundred percent. It's undeniable. It's right there in the numbers. Um, and I think that's something that is is a very vivid part of perhaps it's never going to be what fans think about when they think about football, but the people who own football clubs. And of course, let's not forget that alongside this, Agnelli has been trying to set up his European Super League, take Juventus into that as a founder member and a leading sort of part of it. And um, that's, that's absolutely the forefront of, of the of the people's the people who make these signings minds when they make a signing like that. Having said that, if Ronaldo is or was the poster boy for Juventus and arguably for Italian football to a certain extent, what happens now post uh, Cristiano Ronaldo going to Manchester United? What is left in uh, Serie A, but particularly for Juventus? So for Juventus, I think that... um, uh, the, the sort of brand appeal that you're going to, um, the player you're going to try and, I guess, get that sort of brand appeal for now, it has to be Federico Chiesa, right? Like you've got some He's, sort of... That's not bad. Yeah, it's not a bad choice. You've got some you've got some old guard appeal in... in um, <laughs> Paolo Dybala going, hey, in the corner, <laughs> what about me? Well, Dybala's <laughs> in a very interesting position because he's sort of kicking his heels and, 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 and stalling over a new contract and he got one year left in his contract and I think he's suddenly in a very powerful position. And, I'm, but, and I'm, my impression is he's one of those who's really suffered for Ronaldo coming because he's not really had the position in the team both in a football sense and as a, as a star that I think he was hoping to grow into and I think Juventus were thinking he would grow into. Yeah, his last season before before Ronaldo arrived under Allegri was his best season. He scored 22 goals, I think, in Serie A. So yes, there's individuals there who can grow into it. Juventus are not short of talent. Um, I think it's uneven. It's not well spread through the team as you would like. But... Um, Matthias Delict is is still a, a defender who's very young who has a lot going for him. You've still got Kalini and Bonucci who are um getting older and older, but showed at the Euros what they can still do. You've got a collection of of forwards who I think are are really sort of high on the scale of potential, which um obviously we can talk about Dybala, we can talk about not so much for potential, I suppose, Dybala and Morata, they're getting older, but um Kulisevsky for potential and then Bernardeschi and then obviously Federico Chiesa, who I think is I think he's a superstar. I he's think he's amazing. really headed that way. Uh, well, we saw um, that in the Euros. Mm, I mean, for yeah. me, he was one of the players, if not the player of the tournament, you know. And, and I I actually will be honest about that and say that when, when Juventus signed him, I was I was not sure. I, I thought of that group of players they were signing, that Kulisevsky was the one that I saw having this this really high ceiling. But Chiesa has got something about him. He's shown in his sort of work rate as well as his talent in the last year where you think, now this is one of the guys who's serious about getting to special mm. and even at the weekend when they lost to Empoli if there was anything good about that team it was yeah, the first 15 minutes he had minutes a couple of runs that was went, like wow <laughs> yeah on his own so they have got something that could, someone who can become a superstar they also have a really uneven team and they need to fix it and I suppose what we were just saying about Griezmann leaving Atletico Madrid 
it, it hurts in a footballing sense and it will hurt Juventus in a footballing sense in a short term to say goodbye to Ronaldo. I know there's a lot of talk about how the team had to work around him. It's true, but he still scored 40% of your league goals last season nearly. So you have to fix that now. But they're making that transition at a time when, at least in that part of the pitch, they've got, they've got more than enough talent to work out something else about Ronaldo. And incidentally, if you want to get in touch with us, you can send us uh, your tweets to at Nicky Bandini, at Lars Severston, at Dotson Adibayo, or at Football Ramble as well. Let's get back to Allegri, though. Yeah. In Serie uh, well, I mean, I'm, I, 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 Nicky makes a lot of good points about the sort of commercial impact of, of Ronaldo at Juventus. And, and I'm glad you're here to make those points because they are, rel- I, I reluctantly accept that that is important and that it does matter. But, but on the pitch, and since we're moving on from him now, I think the reality is, I'm going to go slightly further than you, I think he made them worse. And I know that he scored a lot of goals. And, he, and I think this, I suspect this is exactly what will happen at Man United. I think he will score enough goals uh, that his army of, of, of fans on the internet will go, oh, look, he's so great. Uh, but I think the reality is when the whole team ends up being, when, when his gravitational pull is such that everything becomes a, a part of him, every attack needs to end with the ball going to Ronaldo in the position for him to score. That's like the aim of all forward moves. I think you you degrade the overall team in a very, very significant way. And and I'm more excited, I mean, I'm kind of more excited about seeing what Allegri can do with a, a Juventus team where everything doesn't have to revolve around Ronaldo, where you, you can have Chiesa, can, can have have the freedom to sort of develop um, himself into an, uh, the next big superstar where Dybala can, can finally get back to where he looked like he was moving. I, I agree with you on Kulusevski. I think he's very exciting. And I think someone like, you know, you, you can't in all seriousness say that it's fine losing Ronaldo because you have Morata. Like, you'll get left out of any room. But but I think having a sort of sort of conscientious, sort of hardworking forward like him who has a sort of myriad of abilities, he could be a really good foil for the sort of funny attacking midfielders that we just mentioned. So So it'll take them a little while, like... The presence of an extraordinary goal scorer like Ronaldo, who has this gravitational pull, both in person, in terms of who he is as a person, who he is as a player, it makes it makes it hard to play good football because everything needs to go to him anyway. And it might take them a little bit of time to get used to not playing like that. But I think the ceiling is higher without him. I really do. Do you agree with that? Do you agree with that, Nicky? That I mean, Ronaldo got 101 goals in 134 games uh, for Juventus. There's nothing to be sniffed at. But what Lars is saying is that uh, that concentration on him being the person who the whole team is built around is degrading for the rest of the team. But surely you want the goals, don't you? So you give the ball to the person who's most likely to get you the goals. I think. Uh, I think it's as ever. It's it's complicated, right? I think. Um, I think that in the short term. The, the loss of those goals will be felt, I think, maybe more acutely still than people have imagined. Um, we'll see. But I, I do think, it's so trite to say it, but in the end, you do need to score goals. You need to score goals. And, and Juventus will have a lot of players in that group who are not in the habit of it, perhaps even, just because Ronaldo's been the one doing taking on that burden a lot. Having, having said that, I, I think Juventus have been really caught between identities for a while now. And particularly last season under Andrea Pirlo, because Pirlo came in as the young one. And, I, you know, obviously not young like the players are young, but he's supposed to be the one who is younger, more in touch with modern footballers, more able to bring through this generation of players that, that, that we've got coming through here. The idea proposed by him in 
his thesis in the way he talked when he first arrived at Juventus all about this sort of transition to a new modern Juventus. And it is hard to do that. I mean, it's hard to do that, first of all, when you appoint a manager who has zero experience of, of coaching, but it's also hard to do that when you have someone who is so absolutely at the centre of your team as Ronaldo is inevitably going to be. So I, I think that probably in in two years' time, we'll see a better Juventus. I think the Juventus of next season, even, will be better than it would have been if Ronaldo was here this season. But the Juventus this season... I'm not sure it might have been better off with Ronaldo. I'm really fascinated by this. And I do get it now, Lars, because the way that Nicky explained it, that the other players at Juventus who perhaps should have been having their share of goals are now perhaps not as used to scoring goals as they would have been because of uh, Cristiano Ronaldo's presence. But there's two ways of looking at it. Either a player, a top player, lifts everybody else up, or as you're suggesting, downgrades them slightly. What makes the difference here? And what has made the difference maybe in terms of Juventus doing? But but I think one, again, and this isn't completely Ronaldo's fault, I think one thing that's made the situation difficult at that club in a sporting sense is the managerial appointments they've made. Uh, they've The two the last two, like before Allegri coming back, they appointed Maurizio Sarri and Andrea Perlo. Now, Maurizio Sarri, as we've seen at Napoli, at, at Chelsea, is a guy who wants to have a high press. You know, he wants everyone to win the ball back high up the field. And and we we know from from Pirlo's you know paper at the Corvisiano that he also believes in winning the ball high up the field. And but it's like you want to play with a high press and everyone's chasing. And then you have this guy who has to play and everything has to be about him, who just doesn't run off the ball. Mm-hmm. Like so, you can't play the way you want to. You cannot turn the team into what you want it to be. And I think both those coaches, I think that is a problem. And and, and that's actually not Ronaldo's fault really. And it's not even the coach's fault. It's the people who appointed them and just didn't see that this would be a bad ma- match. Uh, Chris tweets us uh, saying, can Sarri do at Lazio what he did at Napoli and what sort of obstacles is he facing? I I, I mean, I hope so, because it would be wonderful as a football story if it happens. Um, his Napoli team, lest we forget, they got 91 points, just missed out on the title, but incredible. And Gonzalo Higuain got, um, he's now been equaled by Mobile, but at the time broke the single season scoring record. He got so much out of that Napoli team. And early indications are good. Um, Napoli scored six goals at the weekend. Immobile had a hat trick, a first half hat trick, despite missing a penalty. Whether or not it can be the same, who knows? Um, Lazio have definitely got some some interesting talents and some fun talent. They also have because they're Lazio some nonsense that happens off the pitch, um, <laughs> which we were talking about uh, just just before we came on air. There was this move to sign Kostic from Frankfurt and. This didn't happen, and then it was first claimed that Lazio, that Lazio thought that Frankfurt had given them a wrong email address to stop them from getting the transfer done before the deadline happened. Then uh, the counter claim that uh, Lazio made an administrative error, and then the conspiracy that perhaps it was a deliberate administrative error because actually Lazio didn't want to spend the money. And this sort of story just seems to associate itself with Lazio quite a lot. Let's put it that way. Uh, Claudio Latito is a very... Um, overbearing sometimes. <laughs> you are choosing your words so precisely today. And he's Admirable. not popular with uh, with the uh, club's fan base and I think they probably have some good reasons for that. Um, it's, a, it's a combustible mix. Maurizio Sarri, as we also know, I mean, at Juventus it was interesting. It was, at Juventus it was a bit like, um, I, I don't even know how to describe it. Um, 
he was he was a, a I guess like a a wild animal in a cage almost mm. because he was mm. sort of never quite got all the way to being a Juventus man but he tried you know he put on he didn't put on a suit for matches but he put on like a smart sweater and that's not who Sari is and in Rome already you can see Sari is full Sari right he's he's in his tracksuits he's smoking his cigarettes the fans are <laughs> the fans are making banners that are like Maurizio Sari written across a Marlboro sign with like they're, they're embracing it and Rome is so hot the media environment as I always say I, just, I know it's one of those things that like people go really you know so and so so you know it's, we've got a lot of um, media here a lot of media there I don't think in Europe there's another city with just the level of media coverage of its two top clubs that Rome has Rome is so intense so it's a combustible mix but maybe it takes a combustible character to write it out I don't know I, I'm really so intrigued by that project and they've kept a lot of good there you know it's the other side of the Lotito coin is that he really does rub even his own supporters up the wrong way a lot. But he's kept together a competitive squad now for quite a while. Um, and Imobile is still there. Malinkovic Savage is still there. There's there's a lot there that's still... Um, that gives uh, Sarri things to play with. Nulla potuto Buffon, nono gol in campionato, 224 gol, Nordal ad un passo il capitano, braccio al cielo, tutti i giocatori su di lui. Well, we were talking a moment ago about the shenanigans at Lazio with regards to uh, last-minute transfers. But now that the transfer window has shut, I love the way that the journalists always describe it as, as you know, slammed shut. Oh, yes. Like it's a real Never closes. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. But now that the window has slammed shut, who are the people that – or who are the players – that we should perhaps keep our eye on, the ones that maybe snuck under the radar without us giving them too much attention. Obviously, the the, the big transfers of Cristiano Ronaldo, Lionel Messi, etc., have uh, grabbed the headlines, but there'll be people under that level, I would have thought. Yeah, well, perhaps, uh, maybe, I don't know if I should have crammed it in in the last section, perhaps but give us a neat segue from the last section. And um, Actually, one of my sort of favourite under-the-radar signings of this summer is uh, Matias Akanyi, who went to Lazio, who is a player who was at Verona last season, captured a bit of international attention um, because he scored uh, an absolutely outrageous overhead kick, really goal-of-the-season stuff in, in Serie A because it was a beautiful team move building up to it. And it wasn't just like one of those overhead kicks where you think he's just sort of taken a, a chance at it and got lucky he you know brings it on his chest first and, and repositions his body and it's just a beautiful beautiful goal but funnily enough that's and that of course you know, became a thing in the Italian press they called it a zaccagnata like a zaccagnism and but that isn't actually what makes me excited about him what excites me about him is he's this sort of advanced midfielder sometimes could play as a number titan but also has, has played a lot as a sort of box-to-box player who has that, um, that I don't know how else to put it, I'm not saying he's on the same level as this player, but that sort of Luka Modric vibe about him, where you're like, sometimes Sakanyi is not the first player you see. You could not notice him for a while. And then you go back and watch what's been happening and you realise that he's at the middle of everything. He's, he's doing the little passes. He's the one who knits it all together and, and makes it work. And I think he has really, really evolved at Verona under Ivan Juric, who's been a fantastic manager for them while he was there. And he's he's a really, one of those players, he's 26, I think, so he's not a kid, but he's at that 
point in that threshold where you think he's about to become again I'm not talking about a Federico Chiesa type level of player here I'm talking mm. about someone though who I think he could be a really interesting player at club level and also who got his first international call up last November then got injured and never actually played for the national team but I think he's he's on that threshold of becoming someone who could be relevant even for the national team I think he's a really neat cheap signing and another sort of really nice piece for um, Mauricio Sarri at Lazio I think he's a really exciting player yeah, Alex wants to know Lars who your favourite under the radar signing in Italy or elsewhere might or be. elsewhere so I'm going to go slightly rogue for, for OTC we don't usually do this but I'm going to bring my full Nordic bias to bear and I want to talk about it's not my favourite of all the signings maybe but I want to talk about Matthias Nolman uh, who's gone on loan to, to Norwich from Rostov and I'm, I'm, I'm taking one foot off the continent but the other foot is all the way in Rostov so first of all I'm manspreading spectacularly over the continent here uh, but, but yeah, we don't you know, Norwegians who go from Rostov to Norwich is, is but Felix is obscure enough here and the reason I want to talk about him because I, I I like his sort of his career trajectory is really interesting to me. Uh, he's someone who who had a sort of a breakthrough domestically in Norway and moved to Brighton uh, to the Premier League at what was probably too early for him and, and was never really close to breaking into the first team at Brighton. Uh, went back to Norway on a loan that was kind of okay, and and then he went to Russia to Rostov. And then you're thinking like the cynic in you thinks, yeah, okay, we've seen this sort of career trajectory before. Like, and I'm not expecting to hear a lot more from you. But instead of sort of disappearing in the wash, like he really knuckled down after moving to again to Rostov in the south of Russia and transformed himself physically. Like there's some amazing before and after shots to be made of this guy's body uh, of sort of before moving to Russia and after. The guy has really discovered the gym and, and and really sort of knuckled down. And he's had some injuries, but when he's been playing, he's really established himself as a really, really good midfielder in that league. And when he's turned up for the Norwegian national team, Maybe because I don't expect that much from him because, again, I don't watch the Russian league that much. But every time I've seen him play for the national team, he's looked a lot better than I've expected every time. And Norway just played the Netherlands um, last night uh, before we, where we record this. And, and and someone I know tweeted that Matthias Norman looks far and away like the second best Norwegian footballer right now, which I think was meant as a dig at Martin Odegaard. Uh, but after after Erling Haaland, he's, he's a central midfielder who definitely has a range of passing. He's not afraid to try difficult passes. He tries maybe too many of them sometimes, but that's not the worst thing in the world. Um, he will have to adjust to the tempo of the Premier League when he goes to Norwich. That might be a steep step up from the Russian league. But he also is someone who just absolutely loves to scrap. You know, it's almost Eric Lamella levels of chaos uh, in this guy. Like, it, it just seems every time someone's getting tackled or kicked or, or there's someone squares up to anyone, like he's right there. And I love that in a central midfielder. I think you, your midfield should have at least one guy who's there for the scrap. And he absolutely adores the, the scrap, Matthias Norman. So I'm really excited to see how he does at Norwich. I, I hope he does very well for them. Norwich, of course, have a great history of, of, of stalwart Norwegian midfielders with the, the, the superb Alex Tetti playing there for many years Norman is a very different character and a very different type but one I'm, I'm hoping will do well for Norwich and, and, and I guess turns out if your career has stalled move to Rostov I guess <laughs> well I wouldn't advise that just in a hurry but thank you for that um, you can tweet us at any time during the course of the week at Football Ramble at Dawson Adebayo at Nicky Bandini and at Lars Severston as James has done what can Chelsea fans expect from Saul? Does he bring something different to the team or has he been signed to provide cover to the midfielders already at the club? I think he brings something different. I think Saul's one of those players who 
certainly as I've sort of um, experienced him, perceived him, I, I feel like he brings a bit of a bit of Diego Simeone with him, doesn't he? He brings a bit of that uh, Simeone mindset, the 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 ruthlessness, the 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 commitment, the hard work. But he's also really sort of classy. Um, ball carrier someone who will make those uh those progressions from from midfield to attack i think he's a really um nice linking player between between the different parts of your team um i don't know if chelsea do have someone quite like him i think he's a, a high enough caliber of player that he, he doesn't sort of sit in someone else's shadow he's his own player i think he's absolutely someone who has shown at Atleti that he does the, the the hard work in midfield enough that if you want to play him instead of Kante and Jorginho in that central midfield for Chelsea, I think that'll be absolutely fine. Mm. And this is this is where I love my stats, but this is where the stats have as a as a metric have some shortcomings. I'm I just have a sense watching him. I think there's more football in him than he's been able to really show in the sort of Diego Simeone system. I think he can he can play more adventurous passes and do more on the ball than perhaps a midfielder in uh, Diego Simeone's Atleti is is maybe not allowed to but able to to show which is why I'm really really intrigued to see what he can do in a Thomas Tuchel team at Chelsea this season I think he's a really fine compliment to an already very very strong squad and this from Sean who says Jerome Boateng to Leon and Falcao to Rayo caught the eye for me how do you feel they'll get on at their new clubs it's it's hard to know with with some of these things Boateng has been talked about plenty he's, he's not getting faster he wasn't um wasn't perhaps uh, for a while but I, yeah I think I probably worry more for that because I think sometimes with center backs as as even with the the best one in the world when you lose that step too much it can it can be too much that said I I do think he's he's moving to an environment where he'll have um perhaps not uh well, I don't know. Maybe that's unfair on on Liga. I was thinking, is the caliber of is the caliber of forward quite as high? I don't know. So, so what I like about that one is, you know, yeah, I get what you're saying. And he's had his injuries, and yeah, if I had to put my house on something, then Jerome Boateng being in great physical nick until it's 38 is not one of the things I would put yeah. my house on. But he is 32. I mean, Hansi Flick wanted to keep him at Bayern by all accounts, and he's moving to a Peter Bosch-led Olympic Lyonnais, who I think could really use an old head in defence. Uh, we'll, we'll wait to see how long Peter Boss is in charge of Olympic Lyonnais. I mean, that might not be forever, but I think if you're going to have Peter Boss in charge, uh, having sort of um, an experienced and, and, and smart uh, centre half at the heart of your defence is probably not a bad idea. How about Foucault? It might be the same conversation to a certain extent. Will he be healthy enough to do things? His his sort of minutes to goals on the pitch has pretty much been consistent in the last um, couple of seasons, I think. It's just there haven't been many minutes on the pitch. And, and again, by all accounts, a great guy. Like, I don't know the terms of the deal, but unless the finances are completely bonkers, which they probably aren't, uh, then he's a great guy to have at your football club. And if you can get him on the field often enough, I think he'll he'll get you goals, even if he doesn't quite have the speed. He, he was never super pacey, but he's someone whose knee injuries definitely set him back quite far. Uh, but he still has that sort of instinct in the box. And uh, yeah, if they can get him on the field, he'll get you goals. And if not, you have a top professional and, and a great guy around the place. So... You've both got a game of the week for us in this international break week as well. Uh, so lots of fun. Do you want to start, Nikki? I'm going to be so predictable, but Italy, the European champions, <laughs> the European champions, <laughs> and the playing. Eurovision Listen, song winners, entirely justified. <laughs> it was going to be mine actually. This is the one I, I'm going to have to think on my feet here. Uh, they're playing away to Switzerland on Sunday, and they have a game against Bulgaria. Actually, as we're recording, it's tonight. 
uh, assuming they get through these both World Cup qualifiers, assuming they get through the game against Bulgaria without losing, which seems probable. You never know in football. They haven't lost for a long time. Then, well, exactly. And then the game against uh, Switzerland will be their opportunity to establish what would then be the longest ever undefeated run in international football. Getting past Bulgaria would bring them level with uh, Spain and Brazil's record runs. So if that Switzerland game, all going well tonight, will be the one where they can set another record to add to a a growing pile that they've achieved uh, under um, Roberto Mancini. But it's exciting. It's a a chance to see this team come together again for the first time since the Euros. So it's the first time it's tonight, but um, the second time then since the Euros. Switzerland are at least up to this point, the team that is closest to them in, in the qualifying group. I find it very unlikely that they're going to have trouble in this qualifying group, but nevertheless, they're the team that's closest. And also in a very immediate sense, it's our first chance to see Gianluigi Donnarumma in a little while because it's turned out that his move to PSG has not yielded him yet. Lots of minutes on the pitch. Right. That was going to be one of my picks. So I've, I've been left stranded a little bit here now. The obvious answer is, listen, you've got to watch Latvia Norway on Saturday. I mean, that's gonna, <laughs> it's going to be tremendous. Uh, he, he did go off with a slight niggle, but my, my new favourite, Matthias Norman, should be playing there as well. So that could be quite something. Maybe Alex Solot will get on the field. Who knows? No, listen, another good answer, I guess. If you're not going to watch Switzerland and Italy, then simultaneously on Sunday night, Belgium play the Czech Republic, which could be one to watch. Uh, Belgium, always kind of fun, even without De Bruyne, there's so much attacking firepower there, it's probably not going to be a dull match. Czech Republic are missing Patrick Schick, so again, uh, that is a, a blow to them, but I mean... Maybe just watch the Czech Republic to see players who might end up playing for West Ham at some point. I mean, that seems to be mainly their recruitment policy right now. Ask Tomas Suchek who he's got on the WhatsApp. See if they can can turn up in East London. But no, the Belgium Czech Republic should be should be a good one. This was a Stack Production and part of the ACAST Creative Network. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.